this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Michael Anderson, the co-founder at Framework Ventures with me today. Michael, how are you? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing well, doing as well as we can in this crazy time that we are all living in and that we will all remember. So Framework is a thesis-driven venture firm that builds alongside our founders, and they're obviously focusing on blockchain encrypted technology. And so we are going to be talking about their thesis and about some of the things that they are looking at at Framework. But as everyone knows, on my show, I like to talk a little bit about the before part, uh, what you did before you started becoming an investor in the space. And you have got some very good background in terms of being at Dropbox and also being at Snap and a co-founder of Hashleets. So if you could give us a little bit of a background about yourself, um, what brought you into the world of digital assets, what inspired you about it, and then we'll go into what you guys are doing there at Framework. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so I actually kind of fell down the rabbit hole of digital assets with the uh, the, the kind of um, cliche story of uh, I was playing around as a CS and economics student in college with this thing called Bitcoin, um, started to try to mine a little bit of it, uh, but then just kind of never really saw it go anywhere. And, and this was in about 2012. Um, when I graduated, I started working for Dropbox, as you mentioned. Uh, I was a product manager building out payments, commerce, and billing at Dropbox. And that's where I was spending a lot of my time during the day, focused on what the traditional payment, billing, and, and value infrastructure was. Uh, but nights and weekends, I was actually getting really deep in uh, Ethereum and, and getting really involved uh, in things like Ripple. Um, being in San Francisco. Uh, and then following my time at, at Dropbox, I went and worked on similar products at Snapchat, uh, building out commerce and, and payments there. And, and that's actually where I met my co-founder, Vance. Uh, he was working at Netflix at the time. Um, and we started doing a lot of angel investing just with our own money and, and time. Um, and this was in about 2016. Um, and in uh, late 2017, we decided that it would be a good time uh, to go and, and kind of throw our hat in the ring in the blockchain space. We were tired of, of watching from the sidelines. Um, we wanted to go build something in the space. Uh, and at the time, it was is really sort of the non-fungible token craze. Uh, it was when CryptoKitties was going off and ERC-721s was going to be the consumer avenue that people would be joining into this ecosystem and, and building applications on top of. Um, and we really thought that instead of building our own intellectual property, we wanted to leverage the IP of something that was known and, and really useful already. Um, so we built Hashleets and it was built on top of Ethereum. It was a ERC-721 standard non-fungible token uh, where it actually represented NFL uh, football players, just like you would have with digital collectibles. Um, combining some of my loves, uh, Ethereum and football, into a product that we really felt great about. Um, and, and it was a great experience, learned a lot. Uh, and from that and, and eventually selling the company, uh, we were able to start Framework Ventures. And so I'm curious, there seems to be, this is something that I wouldn't say I've said, but I've heard this out in the community before, especially on good old crypto Twitter, that venture capitalists seem to be more enamored with Ethereum and the ability that Ethereum presents 
than say Bitcoin. Um, and that's, I wouldn't say I agree with that at all, but I've heard this narrative before and I'm curious from a venture capitalist perspective and you've built on Ethereum now, why do you think that narrative has ever been entered into discussion in the first place? Um, I'm just curious if you want to opine about that. And then second, Ethereum does have some limitations. It does have the EVM, which for those that are not familiar is the Ethereum virtual machine. There are some issues there in terms of privacy. Um, there are some things, obviously it's emerging technology. If you, if you don't think that emerging technology is going to have some, you know, kind of, uh, some crickets and some, you know, things that need to be tweaked here and there, you know, you, you don't know emerging technology well enough. Um, but I would say, you know, Ethereum has had some fits and starts. And so I'm curious, you know, as you're looking forward and we'll talk about your portfolio more, uh, are you looking at Ethereum as something that needs to have, more direct approach from their investor base. You know, I've heard other VCs say, hey, it would be great to talk to Vitalik and talk to the team there and actually become a little more active and kind of point them to things that need to be done. So curious about Ethereum in terms of the way that you operate, in terms of some of the issues, in terms of this narrative, I said, as I said again, that VCs seem to be much more particular with Ethereum than say Bitcoin or the other coins out there. Yeah, great set of questions. Um, Maybe I'll start with the first one uh, that you asked, which is sort of the comparison between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and just as full context, we are, we are a non-Bitcoin focused fund. Um, we definitely are an Ethereum and we'll get into it, but a, a decentralized finance focused fund. Um, we actually share that belief, particularly around Ethereum. And, and the analogy that I like to give is Bitcoin has uh, this massive economic moat, uh, monetary premium, some people have called it, where you have the deepest pools of liquidity with the Bitcoin ecosystem itself. But the flexibility and the functionality of Bitcoin is something maybe akin to a, a Swiss army knife where you have eight different functions or opcodes uh, and, and you can only use them in certain ways and it's very restrictive and the code base hasn't been upgraded essentially in, in years. Uh, on the flip side, you compare that with something like Ethereum and using this Swiss Army knife uh, analogy, I, I would compare Ethereum to this open egalitarian platform, something akin to a smartphone. Um, and the ability to create different applications with a Turing complete smart contract scripting language like Solidity and, and using the EVM is where I think much of my excitement, much of our investment focus goes because you have pure flexibility and functionality when uh, you can think of anything of value transfer or, or, or anything that you'd want to build on top of Ethereum, it's able to be done um, without any controls, without any restrictions. And, and so that's where we see the comparison between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Not to say that Bitcoin doesn't have the potential of becoming digital gold and is that a $10 trillion value? I, I don't know. But in terms of investing in the space where there's applications and real network effects and usage, it's going to happen on Ethereum. And, and that's why I think a lot of VCs are interested in Ethereum, or at least were maybe four or five years ago when Ethereum was coming out. And what's happened since, and, and we, we take a very strong perspective. Uh, we don't invest in Ethereum killers. We actually think that Ethereum will be the ultimate killer platform. And it comes down to a, a core belief that network effects of developers are probably the strongest mode that you can develop when you're, when you're working or investing uh, towards a platform. 
And uh, that's exactly what Ethereum has. You, you have thousands of people working in the Ethereum ecosystem every day, building up code bases and libraries and tools and infrastructure and wallets that you just don't have with any other platform. And even if uh, another one of these ETH killers, as, as you could call them, uh, come out, we don't think that they will be able to displace uh, fully. It's possible that application categories will gravitate towards them based on application-specific needs. Uh, but then it becomes a question of, do you want to use the Ethereum version today, or are you projecting out a year or two, maybe three in advance, for the 1.x or the ETH 2.0 version that's coming? Um, so I think a lot of the, the problems that people are, are realizing today with Ethereum, and, and frankly, that we realized ourselves when we were building Hashleets, are going to be solved. And, and I'm actually really excited about what they have coming in the next couple of months with phase zero launch. So let's get into the portfolio. So I know there are specific ones out there and that one, uh, synthetics is actually quite important uh, to you. Uh, as you have mentioned before, that there's a focus uh, at the firm on DeFi, on decentralized finance. And we've talked quite a bit about that on the show. And so I know that synthetics is bridging the gap between crypto assets and legacy markets. So I want you to talk a lot about that. Um, and I know that's actually you know, quite a, an important piece to your portfolio currently, but there's also other ones, Edgeware and FutureSwap. So give us a little bit of an update on how you actually are reviewing these opportunities. And also, I really would love to hear about origination as an investor. How are you actually finding these opportunities in this landscape? We're going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about the changing markets and everything like that uh, going forward. But as an investor right now, as someone who's been reviewing opportunities, would love to hear about origination, about how you're actually diligence in these opportunities and, you know, obviously working with these founders very closely. And then I want to hear about more about the DeFi side, specifically as it relates to synthetics, edgeware, and then future swap. Definitely. Um, let me maybe take a quick step back and just tell you kind of the landscape and, and how we review things first, and then we can get into the specific uh, investments and the stories behind them uh, after that. So the way that we position our fund, um, and we we evaluate things uh, on four different quadrants. Um, and the four different quadrants are the team, so the core foundation or, or protocol team that's developing it, uh, the product and how it relates to the market that they're going after, um, the token model or the value accrual model, if it's not a token, uh, most of the things that we invest in are, uh, and then the actual community and as it relates um, governance. And, and so those four criteria are how we review things. Um, and the thing that I think most uh, investors in the space necessarily um, from a couple years ago don't don't quite uh, uh, grasp in the same way that we do uh, is that there actually are business models uh, and valuations that can be derived from many of these tokens. And the two predominant models that we see are either buy and burn, where the token is extracting some value uh, and then using that value to burn tokens, reducing the supply in, in something considered uh, a, a similar to a stock buyback. Um, or it's a dividend issuance model where based on some level of participation in the network, you're earning uh, a share of the fees that are generated by the network. And both of these models work really, really well when you're doing things like finance where there actually is a value extraction model like synthetics that has an exchange where they're operating a fee 
based model and, and distributing that to stakeholders. Um, and these are actually really fundamental value drivers, but also growth and incentive drivers for the use and, and proliferation of the networks themselves. And it's something that you necessarily wouldn't see with just a, a normal traditional technology company like Twitter or Facebook. And, and where you're incentivizing usage based off of some consumer appeal versus incentivizing certain usage uh, based off of some value accrual. Um, and so, so that's generally how we see these networks actually having an advantage over some of the centralized traditional technology companies. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're focused on DeFi first. It's because it's the first area that we think these financial primitives will be built to be able to have the infrastructure to go off and build other consumer applications eventually, uh, but from the ground up with a valuation and a business model um, just, uh, right now. Um, and, and so when we're looking at the world of DeFi, the, the ways that we're evaluating things mostly is looking at the broad spectrum of where different subclasses of industries are, whether it's synthetic assets, uh, decentralized exchanges, uh, derivatives, um, or, or if it's um, insurance, or if it's options, or, or any of the just different things that you would already have in the traditional world, building them in a decentralized world actually has uh, some meaning. And, and some of these sub-markets sub and sub-industries are at the point of investment. Some of them are a little bit more science experiment stage right now, and, and we're going to be waiting until the investment phase of these of these markets. Um, so mostly what we do, uh, Vance and myself, my co-founder, um, we'll look at these sub-markets, get to know who the, the major players are in them, figure out what the best model is, and, and figure out who's working on it. Um, so a lot of it's a lot of research um, that we spend a lot of time having conversations with, with core teams or entrepreneurs in the space. Um, and then our perspective from, from just our type of fund versus some other types of funds, which may have a more liquid strategy, is the consistent way to make outsized returns in this industry is to do fundamental research, whether it's being at very close to the metal, playing around with the tools, building the technology, or, or talking with the teams and, and using the products themselves. So that, that's got to be core number one. Number two, being non-consensus and right. Being able to make calls on things like Chainlink when people thought that it was a meme coin and, and not something that people actually were going to be using. But if you look at the core technology, it is something that has fundamental value. That, that's non-consensus and right. And then the third component is being able to hold uh, for a, a very long time. Um, these are early stage technology projects like you discussed earlier, but also public equity style liquidity. So being able to say, we're going to go up and down with the vicissitudes of the market, but we have a long-term multi-year horizon perspective on these things, whereas a month-to-month -month or week-to-week -week perspective would, would be counterintuitive uh, for, for these stage of uh, technologies. Right. And so as it relates to synthetics and relates to the idea of synthetics, it, there are a few others that are chasing this, the idea of reference assets, the idea of derivatives, as you said, derivative of derivatives, if you will. And so I'm curious, you mentioned Chainlink is also uh, in the portfolio. We've had great conversations with Sergey and the team there uh, that are on uh, the library for base layer. And so I know from conversations that what they do is critically important because with a reference asset, you have to ensure that the Oracle data that is coming in there to feed 
the whole machine, if you will. You know, there are smart contracts that are basically there that says, okay, you know, this reference asset is S&P 500 futures, you know, we'll call it like May, you know, May 20s, whatever it may be. And so we have to ensure that the data that is feeding that smart contract and effectively feeding everything that's happening there with that synthetic product is up to par and does not have any faults. And then you also potentially have to have something like a Nexus Mutual, which provides insurance to ensure that that smart contract, if it has any fault whatsoever, that there is some sort of layer of insurance there. So talk to us about some of the mechanics that is involved in some of these kind of new synthetic derivative products. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head in that all of these, the way that we see it, they're financial primitives that together act like individual Lego blocks that you can build larger structures out of. And uh, taking the Chainlink Synthetics, uh, Nexus Mutual examples, um, we're, we're investors in Chainlink and Synthetics, not Nexus Mutual. Uh, but taking that example, our perspective on uh, Chainlink is they are the decentralized data provider for the financial web, uh, for the blockchain ecosystem. Blockchains, in the way that they're constructed, don't have an ability to call for outside resources uh, like you would with an HTTP connection. So you need something called an oracle to be able to go out there and fetch information that would be relevant to something that's endogenous to the blockchain ecosystem, like the price of oil or the price of the S&P 500, or, or frankly, uh, the price of Bitcoin as it's trading on Coinbase, because that's also something that is an outside resource. Um, so those types of connections enable what Synthetics is building, which is a decentralized derivatives and synthetic asset platform, which allow you to create any of these bundles or individual products themselves where for the first time, uh, I believe last week, you you have the Nikkei and the FTSE and, and soon crude oil trading as ERC-20 native assets within the within the synthetic ecosystem. I think that's the first time that you have traditional financial products built on top of blockchain in a trustless way. Um, so we're really excited about synthetics. And then, and then exactly to your point, how do you protect and how do you cover? Well, decentralized insurance is going to be the thing that does that. And what we're really seeing now is these fundamental building blocks being started and tested. But what we're missing is a robust ecosystem of network participants that you would have on Wall Street uh, or in traditional financial markets that are both liquidity providing, buying, selling, uh, but also insuring all these different ecosystems. Um, and that's just something that will take time. And, and you know, we're, we're still in like the first or second out of the first inning of the DeFi ecosystem becoming real. Uh, but what we do know and what we believe is that the arc of technology progress is moving towards more decentralized uh, and being able to have these trustless transactions, which which people are able to use and interact with as they would a centralized provider or they would uh, a traditional financial participant. Um, those are going to be huge advantages over the long run. And it's just going to take time for these technologies to mature and these network participants to join in. Uh, but that's the direction that things are going. And so as we're moving into a post-COVID-19 world, and we've talked a lot about that on the show lately, but as we're moving into new dynamics where society is changing, where we are now working from home, where things like Zoom has become incredibly important, where social distancing is an, you know, an issue, where health and telemedicine is becoming very prevalent and education and ed tech is becoming incredibly important. 
what are some of the things that you are reviewing in the shifting dynamics of our society as it relates to your investment thesis? How is it changing the game, if it is? Great question. Um, I still think that we're in the phase of, of triage, um, maybe to put it one way, uh, where we're still trying to figure out which end is up um, from an economic perspective, from a technology development perspective, um, from some of our portfolio companies, just making sure that things are, are steady and, and we're going to be able to ride out the storm together. Uh, but maybe in, in two to three months, we're going to be able to look back and say, okay, now that the dust is starting to settle, what's the new normal? Um, and we've been trying to think through what potential new normals will be, but it, it's hard to know exactly. Some of the things that we have ideas about and, and things that we've been thinking a lot about are what happens when uh, you need to form another uh, alternative way of uh, making money, um, whether it be through trading crypto assets or developing on top of crypto assets or understanding more about uh, liquidity providing or market making uh, that someone without previous experience or, or technical skills has a new desire to learn because they're looking for new avenues of, of income uh, in this new normal world of everybody's at home for six to 12 months. Um, that's one thing that we're thinking about. The other thing that we're thinking about is this massive shift uh, of, of labor from in-person physical retail, physical uh, production to knowledge work and digital skill sets. Um, I think that this is a shift that's been happening for a very long time, you know, maybe call it 10, 15 years already. But being able to have this, this catalyst of COVID become something that hypercharges that transition, I, I think we're going to move ahead 10 to 15 years and, and potentially 10 to 15 months. Um, and we're going to start to see more people uh, looking for jobs that are, that are remote, um, more companies that are fundamentally supporting that concept. Uh, it's something that the blockchain space has been doing for a long time. Most of our portfolio companies are decentralized workforces already, um, which means that they're perfectly positioned to, to handle a situation like this. It's business as usual for them. Uh, but I think that we're going to see more of that from traditional companies that we wouldn't have previously thought. Um, so those are kind of the two main things that we're thinking about. Um, as it happens, we're going to be looking for indicators uh, like job recs, um, looking for things like uh, new uh, users on different uh, trading platforms and different um, uh, blockchain platforms. Um, but the, that stuff that I think is probably a couple couple months away. That's fascinating. And so as we're wrapping up thoughts about everything, you know, as we'd like to do on the show, and you may have some an answer here or not, that's fine. But as we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit more, anything that you've read recently that really resonated with you? Um, personally, I'm reading Krishnamurti, uh, which has been very peaceful to try to figure out how to listen better and to be more at peace as we're all trying to find some peace in the madness that is right now. And so anything that you've read recently that might be resonating with you that kind of is meaningful and uh as we always like to say for fun any music that you're listening to these days again hopefully you're having some fun i know we're all in some form of a lockdown wherever we are and so anything you've read anything that you're listening to to give you some energy some motivation some peace yeah i got a couple of things um and uh one of the things that i think you and i've talked about before is um, i love to just go back and, and kind of reread um, timepiece uh, information, whether it be Newsweek articles, Time magazines, um, or newspapers from different eras. 
Um, just doing a lot more research as to uh, a better understanding of the zeitgeist of society from those periods of time. Um, historically, I've been looking at things from the 80s and the 90s when, when the internet was getting started, but more recently thinking about different um, global situations like the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, just to understand what people were talking about and, and how to compare and contrast this time to then. Um, that's been fascinating and, and I don't have any major takeaways. It's kind of what you would expect just given the hundred years difference. Um, but I, I have actually been reading a book on MBS, um, the Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is fascinating just to get a better understanding of what his perspective is and, and what his storyline is. Um, just kind of taking everything that's going on around um, and just kind of pushing it aside to, to get a better understanding of someone else and a different perspective. Um, so those are kind of the two pieces of reading that I've been doing more recently. Um, in terms of music, that's kind of where I like to find peace. Um, and, and I love um, classic rock and roll. I, I've been going back and, and listening to every Bob Dylan album I have, and, and that's been really nice, just soothing uh, as I do work. Um, and uh, just a, a great lyricist and, and musician all around. Um, so really been enjoying Bob Dylan. Did you check out that new, I think it's a 16 or 17 minute uh, song that he just pushed up, put out? I haven't, no. Oh, yeah. I heard that, you know, uh, someone was talking about, and that's also another Dylan fan. They said that he, I think he just released, I think it's like a 15 minute song. I don't know how that works, but I think it's something out there. So uh, take a look if you can. Um, the last thing we'd like to do is where can people find out more about Framework and get in touch with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our website's Framework.Ventures. We like to post uh, recent blog posts up there. And, and then also Twitter is probably the best place, high, at High Framework um, is where we like to post any news about us or any portfolio companies. Awesome. So this is Michael Anderson, co-founder of Framework Ventures. Great conversation about some of the things that they are reviewing, especially around DeFi and the mechanics behind that in the Ethereum world, and then obviously some of the new themes. So, Michael, thank you for coming on. Hopefully uh, everyone is safe and we can catch up in the end of the year and we're out of lockdown by that time, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Michael. Absolutely. Thanks, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.